Hello everybody, this is Dan Woods at Early Adopter Research and we're here at RSA 2019 with the team from Illumio. We've got Andy Rubin here and we've got PJ Kerner here and what we're going to do is talk about their product, Illumio, and also the three questions I've been asking everybody. So Andy, would you say hello? Yep. Hi, my name is Andrew Rubin. I am the co-founder and CEO of Illumio. I'm PJ Kerner. I'm the other co-founder and CTO of Illumio. Excellent. So what we're going to talk today about is, first of all, your product so that everybody understands where you're coming from, but then the three questions that we were, uh, were going to cover about uh, zero trust and portfolio pruning and cloud migration, and then the bonus questions if we have time. So um, I really have uh, enjoyed learning about your product because to me, uh, it seems like what you're all about is uh, creating a system so that you can create a very precise definition of the network uh, that is, what you call it is a whitelist, where you can define every network path so that, that what you're defining is all the approved ways that traffic can flow. And to do that, you have what I consider is a domain-specific language where you describe how you want that to look, and then that domain-specific language then translates that into the instructions that are used for the network configuration of the software-defined network or whatever. And then you then go from there to being able to declare policies about how you want uh, that network to be configured or how you want it to be changed. And, and you know, the, the, the essentially you've got underneath there a, a semantically tagged graph and you can then modify and, and make rules about that graph with policies above it. And then you can handle a very complex network configuration in uh, an abstract way. Is that a fair way to describe what Illumio does? Yeah. So first, Dan, thanks for having us today. And um, I think it is a fair way to describe it. I think it's also, um, in a lot of ways, a technical way to describe it. So I want to add a little bit of color. First of all, I want to add a word to your description that I know for us and our customers is very important, which is, although you're right that network and infrastructure and certainly traffic and flows are all very important and relevant, the word application is really at the center of the universe. Um, our customers are not thinking about necessarily just flows and networks and connections. They're really thinking about the application content and the application story. So when we say should two things talk to each other, it's certainly relevant to talk about the IP addresses and the flows, but what the customer is really asking is should this piece of an application talk to this piece of an application or should this environment called development be talking to this environment called production? And I think that application story or the tags that you mentioned are incredibly important. Um, the only other color that I would like to add um, is I think it's important to talk about outcomes much more so than just technology. So there is a reason why customers five years ago weren't really thinking about or even using the word network segmentation or micro segmentation. And it's because the outcome wasn't necessarily a priority. But when you think about it, in today's world, there are two consistent and pervasive problems that everybody seems to want to solve. The first is a very often complete and sometimes utter lack of understanding of what's actually running inside of the data center cloud compute environment. Organizations will consistently tell us that they're missing information about certain systems, certain connections, how things are talking to each other. And so when we built the platform, when we built Illumio, the first problem that we set out to solve was not actually segmentation. We thought of that as an end state or a second state. The first problem was simply building the map, visualizing the graph that you mentioned, so that for the first time, customers could have an accurate and complete understanding of all their workloads, 
how all these things are connected and talking to each other, and probably most importantly, that application story laying on top of the infrastructure story and being presented as one. Obviously, when you see that map, often for the first time, you do find things that are talking to each other or connected that shouldn't be. Well, and it's really interesting because what I've come to understand in talking to uh, different people about Illumio is that there's two use cases when you, you originally start to use the product. The first use case is when you have an existing network and then you try to map and tag it. And when you do that, you usually find some surprises and some things that are not optimal. And then the second use case is when you are creating and putting in this Illumio map and these Illumio tags as part of an automatically created infrastructure in the cloud or an automatically provisioned thing uh, uh, on premise. No, and you're absolutely right. There's those those two kind of motions, right? So one is like we call it the brownfield motion. It is infrastructure that's in applications that are already in play, right? That map is critical to the understanding and the aha moments that our customers have, um, and then applying segmentation there, as well as what I'll call you know greenfield, which is a new applications coming online, maybe with a you know DevOps kind of you know style, and being able to bake security in. Uh, as early in the life cycle as possible, and then sort of having it work through this whole software development life cycle. That's an important. That's an important part. Important way people do this. We and and the way that this seems to me like abstractly, you can think about it is a semantically tagged graph, so that you can now start setting uh, rules according to the uh, semantic tagging, not not on a micro level. Um, that has a, a tremendous effect on the, the simplicity of the product. Yeah, I, th I think, I mean, you're absolutely right there. I mean, so for example, we had a customer who um, you know, had a data center and had some firewalls to do their segmentation, to meet their segmentation goals, and they had 15,000 firewall rules necessary to you know, accomplish that. They you know, moved to a new data center architecture and used us instead, Lumio instead, and they were able to accomplish that same goals with 40, uh, Illumio policies. So there is a huge savings in complexity, um, you know, complexity there. Dan, I also want to add one other thing, um, because I think that it's tethered sort of as one of the underpinnings of the whole conversation, which is the world is not binary and it's certainly not one flavor. One of the things that from the very beginning, um, PJ and I believed, think of it as a first principle sort of thesis, is that the world is heterogeneous and will remain heterogeneous. The other thing that I would say we believe very deeply is that neither of us would have any idea what the world would look like tomorrow, the day after, or five years from now. And so the, the assumption that we made was that whether it's building a map or driving segmentation policy, you really have to be able to sort of do it in a way that's decoupled or agnostic from a particular platform or infrastructure model. And I think that that's actually played out and maybe even played out more extremely than we believed at the very beginning. So whether it's bare metal VMs or obviously containers nowadays, and I'm sure there will be something added to that list in the future, certainly data center and brownfield, but it could be private or public cloud and greenfield. The world is mixed and mixed up, and it's going to probably remain that way in some way, shape, or form forever. We really wanted to be able to deliver Illumio in a way that wasn't dependent on one of those assumptions holding true. Well, and it seems to me that um, another way of, of thinking about this is that you have picked up on the, what makes SQL so great, which is creating a declarative language that can be implementation, implementation independent. So you can describe the network state, and then you switch out a Cisco router for a way router or whatever, and you can still just reapply the programming to that router 
based on the declarative language. No, absolutely. And you sort of mentioned this before about the uh, uh, the power of the graph. Like fundamentally, what our system is is a, a giant graph engine. That that declarative language on top of a graph engine. And uh, more importantly, it's a dynamic system, right? Because the world is the world is not getting slower. It's getting faster. There's more and more compute that's spinning up with containers and public cloud. And this thing needs to be able to recompute on the fly to continue to apply those kind of uh, principles, right, the, um, you know, uniformly, and even in, even in the face of change. Great. Uh, well, let's move on to the three questions. Um, the first one is about zero trust, and what I wanted to get at there is, uh, how can a CISO understand and make zero trust, which is a buzzword that's been used, like AI, like cloud, so much, it almost has lost its meaning. But like AI and like cloud, there's something really important underneath it, which is the idea that the perimeter is no longer as important uh, and it, it can't really work to create a zone of safety. And so inside the perimeter, you need to be able to have the assumption be that everything inside there might be compromised and how do you deal with that fact? And then also, zero trust implies that you know when you're outside of the network and you're trying to do things where you're accessing cloud resources or back accessing systems inside, you want to make sure that computing is safe as well. And so. When I've talked to people about zero trust, you know, it seems like it boils down to the idea of maybe creating better authentication, creating um, a uh, a way of uh, possibly having a cloud gateway, um, having um, the ability to look for threats, uh, and also having better device management. And, and if you did all those things, that's sort of like a reasonable step towards zero trust. But I don't think that it, if you did all those things without really understanding the philosophical underpinnings, I don't think you would keep up. And so, you know, you can't buy zero trust off of a shelf like a vendor. The, the progenitor of the idea at Google, they built their own stack to do it their own way with proprietary technology. So I guess the question I'm asking is what would you advise CISOs to do to rightfully embrace the good ideas in Zero Trust, but also uh, to do something practical that's going to help them? Yeah, I think uh, from, from my point of view, one of the critical concepts of Zero Trust came before Google, right? It was the concept of least privilege. It's been around for, you know, 20 plus years. Um, and least privilege applies to users, right? Um, as where your point about authentication comes in, um, users should have a minimal level of access to their systems. And what happened with the perimeter is we had this perimeter and we sort of lost the idea of least privilege. That's what, when you think about inside the perimeter, it's you have access to everything. And, um, but that's changing, right? And so people are sort of applying, again, applying that, that, that principle of least privilege to users. And in our case, it is for all the machine-to-machine -machine traffic, right? So this application can talk to this application. Segmentation is another uh, instantiation of using that principle for, for that, for that uh, use case. And you mentioned earlier, Andy, when we were talking, that you didn't think it was right to talk about zero trust as uh, just a style of cybersecurity, but also you said it's not also a prescriptive architecture either. Yeah, I, I think it sort of floats in between and it probably sways back and forth. Um, I think that it may start as a style, it may start as a concept, 
and it probably never gets all the way to a fully prescriptive architecture because that implies every organization would buy three controls and say we're done. Um, I think what it is is it's a framework and it's probably a framework and some architecture mixed in. It's a set of security controls and there's probably over time going to evolve to be a set of core controls that will be non-negotiable. And then remember that every organization is different. Every organization has slight differences, sometimes major differences in their infrastructure model or their application model. And so I think the outcome of Zero Trust is exactly that. It's a non-prescriptive but very real security framework, security architecture. Um, but how you get there and the specific controls and obviously the specific vendors that you choose to get there with, I think that that's something that'll shift and over time, you know, even organization by organization, it'll adapt. I also think it's a, I mean, it's a journey, right? And again, you have to sort of be pragmatic about that. You're just not gonna get there overnight. It's like, what are the first steps along that journey? What can I do with these users? Um, um, how do you sort of, uh, how, one, one bit of guidance is figure out what your journey is, you know where you're gonna end, but you, you have to go along that path. Um, one thing I wanted to ask about, which goes to the way your product is used, is my vision of Zero Trust has always been something in which the segmentation around a particular user might change based on what I'm trying to do. Mm -hmm. And so, is it possible for a Lumio to support that configuration where I'm coming in and I'm just accessing email, and then the Illumio policy surrounding me might be X, you know, rule or, or whatever. But then when I come in later and I want to ask access to the trunk source code tree, then somehow that I, I get a, a different segmentation that you know, and maybe I have to go through different authentication. No, no, absolutely, absolutely. That that model of you know, it, whether it could be like where you're coming from, like your device posture, uh, you know, sort of maybe behavior analysis, like all those things are sort of part of how you would sort of assess the access, you know, the access that is allowed at that point point in time. You can imagine that if a if somebody we were sort of detect that um, something bad was happening, you could sort of ratchet down access slowly. Um, uh, against those maybe the critical assets you lose at you lose you first lose access to the critical assets and then you so so they can get all but the way to quarantine. Be, can that be done? Can those policies be set in real time by Illumio? Uh, those I mean, all that needs to get done with orchestration with a with a few other kind of systems that can do all that detection. But the the you know the Illumio policy model is incredibly dynamic and the policy compute engine is incredibly dynamic. So all that stuff can sort of change in real time. Absolutely. Okay, so it's intended to be able to react. It is intended to be dynamic and you know you know rapidly change as the situation changes. Excellent. Um, the next question I want to ask is about um, uh, portfolio pruning. Um, the cybersecurity world has gotten uh, bigger and bigger every year. More and more vendors on the floor at RSA, um, lots of venture capital, uh, lots of uh, uh, new products for new uses. And it seems like the portfolio in place at most companies never gets smaller. You know, you have more and more and more. Now, of course, that's reasonable because the attack surface has gotten bigger. You now have many more types of attack surface that you need to protect. And so it goes to reason that you should also perhaps have more ways of protecting that. But it also seems reasonable that as we've gotten smarter and as we've understood the problem better, shouldn't we have some sort of simplicity? Shouldn't we be able to prune that portfolio and either prune the number of vendors we have, the, the, the complexity of the, the process of doing this, 
um, or having new capabilities replace and make mm -hmm. obsolete older capabilities. But it just seems like that that pruning actions don't seem uh, uh, easily accomplished. We don't seem to be getting a lot of pruning. Well, I think the start of the answer is you're right that there's been an explosion in just about every measurable sort of metric around cyber. So amount of capital invested, number of vendors obviously on the floor of RSA, um, the problems we're trying to solve. So I think you're right that the landscape has grown significantly larger and more complex. Um, I do think that it's fair to say that that's probably happened and been driven by one core attribute, which is the size of the problem has, as you said, become a lot bigger. It's also become a lot more visible. And so I think that to sort of start the conversation by acknowledging that 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, cyber wasn't as visible, wasn't as large, wasn't as meaningful a problem, and now it is, that probably is the easiest explanation. There is a little Occam's razor in there in that the problem got bigger, there's more people trying to solve it. I, I think the more interesting point underneath it, though, is this. You mentioned... Uh, when you were when you were setting up the question today, you said something about well, the attack surface has gotten a lot bigger, therefore we must need more stuff to fight it. I think we should be careful not to conflate the attack surface getting bigger with the problem becoming more complex and therefore needing more vendors or more solutions or more products to solve it. Um, the problem can become bigger, but that doesn't necessarily need that doesn't necessarily need mean that you need more tools to solve it. But so far it has. It has so far because that's been our strategy. And I guess what I would say is when I spend time talking to CIOs, certainly CISOs, and customers in general, one of the things that you hear them talking about now for the first time is that they're no longer interested in having the conversation about technology for technology's sake or tools that solve a problem. What they want to do is they want to start the conversation by understanding the risk. And when they look at the risk and they say, look, this is the risk that I'm trying to manage or shrink or control, then all of a sudden the vendor, the product, the solution is mapped against a risk. And I think that, that that's been missing in cyber for a long time. We've approached it from we see a threat vector, we see an attack surface, we're going to build something to try and deal with it. And we never necessarily stopped and said, how does this turn into a risk model? If I deploy this solution, is it marginally reducing risk or is it dramatically reducing risk? And so at the end of the day, the two things that we're all certain of is, one, we can't reduce risk to zero. Doesn't matter how many products you buy, how much money you spend, how many people you hire, you will not build something that will be totally safe 100% of the time. And the tail on that risk is simply too long and expensive to try and drain to zero. I think the second thing is that you're going to see customers do what you described in the question, which is they're going to start to look at the pruning. They're going to start to ask, if I took this tool away, how much more risk am I really going to have as a result of it? And I don't think it's something that happens overnight. It's not a light switch. But I think after years of growth in number of tools, number of solutions, number of vendors, you're right that there is this shift in the conversation where customers are starting to say, I have this risk. It is a business risk like any other. I have to find ways to manage it, reduce it, and control it. And I'm going to look at the things that I buy and make sure that there's alignment. And at the end, I believe that that analysis is going to lead to less tools that have a bigger impact and a smaller number of vendors that are able to provide them. But I think that what's interesting about what you said is that I do believe that people are starting to understand that there are incompatibilities between product groups. So I would suspect that you and your customers probably are on the low end of adopting deception technology. Because once you have a really tightly defined network, 
deception becomes less important because you, you, you know that you don't have a lot of uh, ability to do east-west traffic and things like that. And uh, if you have an environment in which you, you're, because of your business needs, you have to have a wide open network, that would make more sense to have deception technology. And I, I believe that there's certain, uh, I, haven't, I haven't tried to identify these yet, but I think there's certain sets of solutions that, they, in, that are sort of incompatible, or at least there's tension between them. Uh, you know, the more you, the more, the, the better whitelisted your network is, maybe the least you need other types of solutions. And I, and I do think you need to think of it, so I, I think of control act efficacy, right? That's that's what you're you're talking about. And there is, the first the first challenge is there's overlapping uh, uh, products, right? Th things that actually do solve the same, effective, effectively the same problem. You can have A or you can have B, and if somebody might have, might have A and B in there, and if you remove one of them, you're still you meet the same kind of you know risk uh, you know uh, criteria right so people do have to start looking at over that, that overlap and I do agree with what you sort of said is if you had a highly segmented network and you applied you know um, and you applied uh, deception like that the efficacy of deception in a highly segmented network might be very low right but if you applied deception in a unsegmented network. The efficacy could be could be high, right? So you have to sort of look at control efficacy, and you have to look at the interdependencies of the controls you have in place. And also, I mean, you know, I mean, it, the, the peop, there are a few companies out there that are so cloudy, and they were born in the cloud that they really don't have um, uh, uh, a perimeter. And I could imagine that that in such a, a case, you you. Um, you might be able to get a boy without having a firewall. I, you know, if you think about it, and it's a conversation that we have uh, with our customers all the time, the reality is that most of the world still does run in brownfield. So yes, if you are a brand new company and you're setting up brand new infrastructure to support a brand new business and business model, then obviously that puts you in an unbelievably advantageous place in terms of not having the legacy or the existing plant, so to speak, to deal with. But the reality is that most organizations live in this bifurcated world, mostly old, trying to get to more new. And so we don't really think of it in terms of you wouldn't have to have this or you wouldn't have to have that. We look at it as look at the environment, look at the risk in the environment, and then find the proper controls. So for most of our customers, if the perimeter is available, if the firewall is a valid control at the perimeter, they're going to continue to use that, not because it happens to be called a firewall, but because they've deemed it to be something that will reduce the risk or it's a valid control. And, and somebody pointed out to me that also all of these tools provide visibility, and when you, when you get rid of one, you lose that visibility, and people often don't, they get used to it and don't like to do that. Yeah, to your point earlier, I mean... All, all products, for the most part, have some ability to provide either information data or visibility, and then you come back to the question of, that is generically true, but how much value am I getting out of that visibility, and do I need it versus do I want it? It's no different than what we were talking about. About We could have 100 different security products that all provide some value, but the question is, what is the benefit? How much risk does it reduce? And of course, how much does it cost to buy and maintain all 100 of those products? And at some point, the reality, and, and it's not something we've spent any time talking about, but it's worth pointing out that there, there is certainly a conversation around value that a product or a solution brings. Don't forget that on the other side of the balance sheet is the cost of not just purchasing it, but operationalizing it, integrating it, and maintaining it. 
And so I think customers have also, over the last few years, become much more aware of the fact that, as the old expression goes, nothing in life is truly free. And so I think you're seeing the assessment not just of the problem that it solves, the value it creates, the risk that it reduces, but also what is it going to cost me to really turn this thing on and run it long term. And I think customers are spending a lot more time looking at that balance sheet as opposed to just one side of it. The last question I wanted to ask is about uh, the migration to the cloud. And uh, right now, you know, cybersecurity is dealing with the cloud in a variety of ways. One way is that cybersecurity solutions are migrating to the cloud and being implemented there, although the bulk of the spending is for on-premise solutions right now. And uh, most of the on-premise solutions have a cloud booster of some sort. But um, the second thing is that uh, how do you move to the cloud uh, and protect the assets in the cloud in this whole different environment. Uh, and, and, and that is an environment where things are better in assessments because the cloud vendor takes on a variety of the security tasks that you don't have to take on. On the other hand, you have new uh, challenges and, and uh, you have the same old uh, you know, uh, bugaboos of operational discipline and, 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 and being careful about what you do because now if you're not careful, the whole world can see that you weren't careful. Uh, as opposed to when, when you're not careful inside your, your uh, data center. Uh, and then finally, how do you manage this transition without creating another layer of fiendish complexity as well? Because you're going to have to manage on-premise security and cloud security, and it seems at this point we're back at the same uh, place where I talked about earlier, which, oh, we have another set of, of componentry that we're going to add not that we're going to extend the componentry we already have to, to solve that problem. Oh, there are lots of questions in there. Yes. Um, the, I mean, I think, I mean, I think um, you make a good point about uh, migration to cloud. One thing that you get, whether you're going to SaaS, right, um, where you have a large, uh, you know, SaaS provider that's providing security for your data, or whether you're going to IaaS and uh, you know, adopting an AWS model, um, you know, as infrastructure as a service, what you get is rather than having like artisan kind of security, you get security that has been built at scale, right? So it's been built at that level and then has been built with a large number of people sort of looking at it and uh, applying lots of best practices. I, I mean, I love the, you know, a lot of the, I love the one Amazon practice of, of um, they don't let any uh, disk drives out of their data centers at all. Every single one goes through the chipper. Uh, in, in, there's no, there's no other, there's no other option, um, and so those kind of things done at scale are kind of are really powerful, and that's why you get uh, some of the value of the cloud. In terms of some of the security offerings, I mean, we Illumio provide a SaaS offering and an on-prem offering. I mean, the vendors do need to provide customers' choice. All right, they need to provide, um, and as we, as Andrew sort of talked about before, being able to provide a security control that it works on-prem. You know, works in private cloud, works in public cloud. That's kind of the thing that, uh, as people adopt these things, and as we said before, it's a hybrid environment. You have to have security tools that sort of work through that. I think that's what the industry sort of demands to sort of help them through that. Now, I imagine that there will be kinds, different kinds of cloud security. One kind of cloud security will attempt to make sure that the vendor is doing a good job, and and. Uh, uh, a lot of people are probably going to be willing to trust the vendors, you know, for good reason. But I, I think that, you know, when the, 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 the at the highest level of security, you probably want to have an independent way of confirming that there are no problems. 
Yeah, it's really interesting. I actually heard it described once, and I it, it stuck with me because I, I love metaphors where it's very simple and it sort of relates to the real world. Um, when you buy a house or an apartment or you rent a house or apartment in a neighborhood, you sort of rely on the neighborhood to provide a certain level of base protection. There's a police department. They are presumably going around and making sure that, you know, generally the streets are safe. There is a certain level of expectation that there is some baseline security that's simply there and provided. But the reality is that what goes on behind your front door, whether you choose to put an alarm on, maybe you put cameras up if you really want to have great security in your house or your apartment, those are all decisions that you have to make for yourself. And in a lot of ways, the two are neither complementary nor in conflict in that the decisions that you make about what you do within your own four walls, you don't necessarily integrate those, report them. You don't necessarily have interoperability with what's happening on the streets. But at the same time, it's hard to argue that if you choose to overinvest or heavily invest inside of your own four walls, that you don't have a safer house. And I just, the metaphor always stuck with me because when you think about somebody who, let's say, picks up a thousand workloads and moves them from the traditional data center into the public cloud and the IaaS infrastructure, you, you sort of think of it as, yes, they're going to benefit if those basic security controls or investments have been made on their behalf, something that back home they would have done themselves, it's possible somebody's now done it for them, but there's still a whole set of security controls that they have to decide on their own whether or not they want to invest in. And I don't think that that decision process is any different because the workload happens to sit in a data center or it happens to sit in a cloud provider. Companies assess risk and make decisions about how they want to invest in security, and I think they're still going to be making those decisions when they run those workloads in the cloud. Right, and I think that the kind of checking software you know, was probably going to be more uh, applied to mistakes that you make in your own uh, infrastructure configuration and security configuration. Sure. You'll be looking for stuff you mess up, like the, the classic letting you know the um, S3 uh, buckets uh, be uh, public. Um, so last, uh, uh, I have three other questions we can go through really quickly. One is about ops discipline. It seems like that um, everybody uh, uh, should you know, try to improve constantly their operational discipline, better configuration, patch management, asset inventory, uh, automation, all of that pays huge dividends. Uh, but often, you know, that sort of runs behind the you know buying new cybersecurity capabilities. Why is it that you know that's so hard for people to maintain focus on over long periods of time? I think we just have a lot of complexity in the world, and sometimes it's not lack of desire, lack of interest. It's certainly not a lack of realizing how important it is. We spend time with customers every day who talk to us about how basic hygiene or basic operational discipline is as important as any tool that they buy. But the reality is that we have what have been over time turned into very complex environments. And even though we talk about hygiene or discipline as something very simple, we describe it as something that seems like it would be very basic. Um, the reality is that it's hard. Um, now, is that an excuse for not doing it? Is that a reason to not prioritize it? Of course not. But I do think sometimes we take it for granted that it's not, um, as they say, as easy as getting up and brushing your teeth in the morning. The, the only thing I see is there are a lot of things that require multiple disciplines across the business to sort of commit communicate and agree and those things are always harder it's not it's not a security product kind of thing it is just it is just those those products those 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 uh, projects are harder to get done and and some of the ones you listed are of that type the uh, second question is about cyber culture have you seen uh, 
companies that are outside of the usual suspect areas of intelligence, financial services, that are good at establishing a cybersecurity awareness culture? And, and do you know what they did to do it? PJ's thinking of an example. Because no, in, in, in the intelligence world, people are aware of cybersecurity and and they have good best practices and habits. In the financial services world, they're aware of it. But it's not the rest of the world where you have people where the workers are saying, wait, don't put your passwords on a post-it note. That's going to hurt us all. So I think that's changing, though. i got to tell you, I was in Australia and Asia visiting with our customers and some of our prospects two weeks ago, and I was standing in the lobby of a building, and it was not a financial services firm. It was not a government agency. It was actually what we all would describe as sort of an old-school business. And I was standing in the lobby, and it was near the elevator banks, where literally all the employees who work in this fairly large building go in and out every day, the main elevator bank, and they had a series of posters on the wall. And some of them were sort of internal advertisements for certain programs that they were running. And one of them literally was a list of basic sort of cyber reminders. And I asked, because obviously we were there to talk to them about segmentation, I asked the host that was taking us upstairs, what's the story with the poster next to the elevator? And he said, actually, it's Cyber Awareness Month. And I said, well, what does that mean? And he said, it's our way from the security team to talk to the organization to sort of make sure that we take them through the basics. And that, to me, not only is it heartwarming, because obviously as a cyber professional, we like seeing and hearing that, but it sort of was a good data point to show that this is no longer just a cyber conversation for a large bank or a government agency or a business that traditionally we would have thought of as cyber paranoid or focused. I think it's becoming more pervasive. And, and I'll, I'll say this because I think that we see this now more and more often. When you have a board member who may sit on two or three boards, and one of them may be a bank, but one of them may be a manufacturing company, and that person takes that knowledge from one industry to another, or maybe it's a chief operating officer, not the CISO, not the CIO, and that chief operating officer has three friends who sit in those same roles in other companies. This sharing of information, it, it's obviously becoming a lot more pervasive, cyber becoming a common topic in all these conversations. I don't think that we should be thinking of it as industry or geography specific anymore. I'll have one more thing. I mean, my kids, I have three kids, and they learn at school about this. We have conversations at home. I mean, there'll be a generational wave of people who have grown up and understand not to, you know, do these things. I mean, that'll be another thing that sort of happens. And the last question, we can deal with it quickly because I know we're running out of time, is uh, cyber insurance. A lot of CISOs, CIOs, CTOs are forced to buy cyber insurance. And they don't like it because, for good reasons, because the cyber insurance industry is very new. There's lots of escape hatches for the policies. They don't really cover that much when you look at what they're actually covering. They don't often cover the first party risk. They cover legal expenses or they cover uh, forensic costs or, or a variety of other things. Uh, and so, and then they also involve an audit, you know, where you have people that may be less than uh, skilled, you know, criticizing whatever your, your um, infrastructure is. How can CISOs turn that conversation around into something productive? Because they're never going to win, or very rarely going to win the, idea, the, 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 the argument, let's not have the cyber insurance. Yeah, it's a great question. And obviously, I'm going to start by saying that this is not a conversation that Illumio is necessarily having directly with its customers. But we are in the room with some of these stakeholders. And I'll share with you 
from my perspective, probably the best way that I've heard somebody talk to me, and it was a CISO, about how they think about it. They said, you know, in the unfortunate event that we were to have a breach, there's really sort of three things that from an impact perspective we're going to think about. I think the obvious one, and quite frankly, the one that belongs at the top of the list, but is also probably the least insurable one, is simply trust. In other words, we're going to have potentially an issue with our customers trusting us, certainly our stakeholders, and I'm not sure that that's quantifiable. I'm not sure that you can buy an insurance policy. When you talk about things like, well, will an organization, especially if it's a consumer-oriented one, lose revenue over time if they have a breach and it becomes a public event? The answer is probably yes, but I'm not sure how you quantify it. So in this CISO's mind, that first bucket was the most important one because it really was all about trust, but it was also the one that, that he was not thinking about insuring. Here were the two that were a lot more tangible, scopable, and quantifiable. The first one was actually what you described him, which is the cost of the breach, the service cost. I have to go and hire a certain consultant to come in and help me figure out what happened. I have to go buy a product in order to do something that I wasn't doing before. And so in, in his words, he described it as the service cost of the breach, the actual short-term or immediate-term impact and the dollars attached to those activities. Maybe there's an audit requirement that comes up as a result as well. But it was the second category that actually I think most people don't think about, and it was the one that stuck with me the, the, the strongest because I know I'd never thought about it, which is when something happens and I have to go spend money to deal with it, fix it, change it, there's a whole series of other things that I was planning on doing that I can't do anymore. There's a project that was funded that's no longer funded because those dollars had to go somewhere else. And so in this particular CISO's mind, the way that he actually netted it all out was very simple. I want to make sure that I have insurance that covers the service cost of the breach and allows me to continue to run the business and make the investments I was planning on making during that fiscal period or that year. And if I could buy a policy that ensured that those two things happened, then although I, I, I can't deal with the most important one, which is what are my customers, what are my stakeholders going to think, but I can certainly ensure that we're able to pick ourselves up the next morning and go back to work. And I'm not, sure, I'm not sure if that math is firm enough yet in everybody's mind, but I think it's a fantastic framework to think about if right. I write a check and buy a policy, will it guarantee me those two outcomes? And it just stuck with me. I thought it was a yeah. really good way to think yeah, about it. I like it. it. Yeah. Well, thank you so, guys so much for spending time with me and, uh, and dealing with the challenges of uh, the recording. And uh, I appreciate it very much. It's our thank pleasure. You. Thanks for having us.